Okay, everybody, why don't we uh, go ahead and get seated. And while you're taking your seats, you can be opening up to John chapter 6. So John chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. We've been journeying through the gospel of John. And as we get to John chapter 6, it's a chapter that I've been very excited to get to because there's so much in this chapter. In fact, it's a a fairly long chapter, and so before we even get into the text this morning, just want to share some information with you, might be useful for your own studies. I do hope that you are studying throughout the week the same text that we're working through together on Sunday morning. I think it will be to your benefit if you make time to do that. So if you look at John chapter 6, it's, it's a lengthy chapter. You can break it down into three mini-narratives, as I'm going to call them. There's one greater narrative that carries us throughout the chapter, but it's broken down into three mini-narratives. So the first is found in the first 15 verses. This is when Jesus feeds the 5,000. The second little narrative comes right after that. It's found in verses 16 through 21. This is when Jesus famously walks on water. And then the third narrative is the rest of the chapter. It takes up the bulk of the chapter, and it's a conversation Jesus has with the crowds based on those two things that happened in the beginning of the chapter, all about the bread of life. And so what we're going to do for time's sake is we're going to split this chapter into two halves. We're going to take number one and number two from this list, these first two mini-narratives, and deal with them today, and all of that's going to set up what we're going to look at next week, which is the second half of that chapter, gives us a lot more time to really dig deep into some of the more challenging things that Jesus says as we get throughout the narrative regarding the bread of life. So today we're going to look at the first 21 verses together. As we look at this chapter, there's two themes that run throughout this chapter. The first is the Lord's Supper, and we're going to talk about this primarily next week, although the passage that Stefan read for us this morning clues you in, this conversation Jesus has about not just breaking of bread and giving thanks, but also eating flesh and drinking blood. What in the world does that have to do with anything? So we're going to talk about that next week when we get into that text. But for this morning, one of the themes we see throughout this chapter that I really want to draw your attention to is I would like for us to have the Exodus in our minds as a backdrop for everything that's happening in this chapter. And I'll highlight why as we go throughout the text together. And one final piece of information, you might want to write these down. This is one of those passages that occurs in John that is also found in all three of the synoptic gospels. And so this is where it's found in those synoptic accounts. So in Matthew, you find it in chapter 14, in Mark in chapter 6, and in Luke, it's there in chapter 9. And so if you want to look at what those synoptics have to say about this same thing, and I always recommend that you do that, that's where this account can be found in the synoptic gospels. So having said all that, let's get into the text together this morning. So John chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, the chapter begins like this. Sometime after this, that is sometime after the events that we read about in the previous chapter in chapter 5, Jesus was at an unnamed Jewish festival in Jerusalem. It gives him an, uh, the opportunity to give those witnesses for himself. He's making bold claims about his nature, about his relationship with the Father, and he goes into a conversation about those things that witness to the big statements that he's making. And so on the heels of that, sometime later, we don't know how long after this, Jesus has now traveled north, and he's on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And so he says, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him. So this is the first time in the Gospel of John we find reference to the fact that not only is Jesus drawing crowds, but the crowds are now following 
him. He's growing in fame and notoriety, and people are lining up to see what he's going to do next and to hear what he's going to say next. And this crowd specifically has gathered because they have been witness to the signs that he had performed by healing the sick. And so they have seen the things that he's done. Now they're going to follow him. They are interested in what's going to come next in Jesus' ministry. So it says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. And again, that kind of sets the backdrop for the Exodus story and this Exodus theme that runs throughout this chapter. In verse 5, it goes on, it says, When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. But Philip's answer here is telling, and it kind of sets the, the stage for the drama that's about to unfold. Philip's response is this, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy just enough bread for each one to have even a bite. So why is this included? Well, like I said, it sets the stage for the drama. We're clued in here to two things. Number one, the overwhelming size of the crowd of people. Later on, we're going to find out it's 5,000 men. Well, you add women and children to that. We don't know how big this was, but it's a crowd in the thousands. This great group of people following Jesus. And you can imagine how intimidating it would have been for the disciples to have Jesus ask them the question, how are we going to feed them? Them probably having never considered it would have been their responsibility to take care of these people to begin with. So we clued into the overwhelming size of the crowd, but also just the idea here that the disciples are overwhelmed by the responsibility that they have to take care of these people. It would take more than half a year's wages to buy even enough bread for each one to have a bite. They are low on resources. And that sets the stage for what's going to happen next. What can Jesus do in an environment where there is great need and very little resource? Are they out of luck? Or can Jesus provide even in that environment? So we go on in verse 8 and 9. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, so just to drive the point home, we get information from another disciple. He speaks up. Andrew this time says, well, here's a boy. He's got five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? And don't you think John chose that question very carefully? How far will they go among so many? Well, let me tell you how far that can go, right? This reminds me very much of what we read about in the Exodus. One of the very first things that happens after the children of Israel have been brought safely out of Egyptian bondage is that suddenly they realize where they are. They're in a desert wilderness environment. They're overwhelmed again by the reality that there's a great group of people and very little resource. And what do they do? They begin to complain. And they say, oh, if we were only back in Egypt with all of the food that we had available to us in Egypt. It's just the beginning of their grumblings. And God's response to them is, I'm going to provide the food that you need. I'm going to give you every day bread, manna from heaven. I will sustain you. Even though you're great in number and the resources are low, I will sustain you. And that sets a backdrop for what's happening here, will Jesus do the same? Will he sustain this large group of people in the face of, of this overwhelming reality that they don't have enough to take care of everybody? And so we get to uh, 
verses 10 through 11, Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and so they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. And Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted, and he did the same with the fish. So this tiny amount of food he takes and he starts to distribute it and hand it out to the people. He is going to give them what they need. And then here's the climax of this whole drama. When they had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Now let me stop there for a second and just let it soak in for a minute that there are leftovers in this environment. Just the fact that Jesus was able to take that small amount of food and give people what they needed, even if they had just been able to eat to their fill, that would have been miraculous. But there are leftovers. How much is left over here? Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled, what? Twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. You start with five little loaves of bread Everyone eats till they're full, and what's left over is 12 baskets full of bread. You have more left over than what you began with. And like we talked about from the very beginning of this gospel, one of the themes that runs throughout the gospel of John, God is a God of abundance. He is a God of abundance. He will not just give us what we need, but above and beyond what we need. Cast your minds back to John chapter 2, the miracle that he performed at that wedding At Cana, they run out of wine. Jesus did not turn a bottle of water into wine, did he? What did he do? He found six stone jars holding 20 to 30 gallons each, and he turned that into wine. 120 to 150 gallons of wine. He gives them more than they need because God is a God of abundance. And that point is driven home here yet again. What does Jesus do? He sees the needs of the people. He gives them what they need, and they've got 12 baskets left over. Now I would just ask you to think for a moment about your own walk with your creator. Have there been times in your life when you have felt like you have run out of resources? When you have panicked? When you have thought to yourself, oh if I was only where I used to be because then I had enough. Only to see, even in that moment of doubt, only to see God come through and supply and leave you with leftovers. Because we serve a God of abundance. And I want to remind you, even if you didn't learn your lesson the first time, if you're in that moment right now feeling desperate because resources are lacking, number one, won't you let us know so we can serve you? But number two, trust in your God to provide because he will. I know he will because he always has. And he will continue to do so. Jesus is teaching this crowd that lesson here in providing for them in a moment where they didn't think they had enough. But then we continue on, and it says, After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, So what is their reaction? Now, I want to make clear that two things are happening here. John is drawing us into a contrast that he is making between two different groups of people, but he does it two different ways. Number one is the contrast between this group of people in chapter 6 and the group of people that we just got done talking about in chapter 5, the group that was gathered in Jerusalem, a group of people who did not want to come to terms with the identity of Jesus. And so he is bringing those witnesses against them to convince them that he is who he claims to be. They didn't want to come to terms with who he was. Here we've got a group of people who are totally different in nature. They see what Jesus is doing, and they're easily convinced that there is something special about this man. In fact, they begin to identify him 
in two different ways. Number one is this. They began to say, surely this is the prophet. Not a prophet, the prophet, who is to come into the world. Number two, this is what happens. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So these group of people are so impressed with what, with what they've just witnessed Jesus do that they've determined two things about him. He is the prophet, and they need to make him king. So let's talk about those two identifiers for just a minute. Number one, Jesus as the prophet. This is a reference, I think, again, back to Deuteronomy chapter 18. We talked about this last week. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses is talking about the fact that there is going to come a prophet after him that would serve the same role of prophet and priest, but would do so in an even more magnificent manner than he would. And so, for example, in Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. The reason that passage is important is because the Israelites at this point in time were clued in to that promise. They were looking for the coming of that prophet. And so when they say, surely this is the prophet, they're referencing back to what Moses had said, but it's also cluing us in to the messianic hope that lay at the heart of where they were as a people. They were living in Roman occupation. They needed to know that the promises God had made them were going to come to fruition. They were expecting it to happen soon. Messiah is coming. The prophet Moses promised is coming. They were looking for him. Here comes this man who's able to do these things. Surely this has got to be the prophet that we've been looking forward to. In John chapter 1, again we referenced this last week, we were clued into this already in John chapter 1. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And you remember Nathanael's response? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Right. But what is Philip talking about here? The same thing these people in John chapter 6 are talking about. The prophet that we've been waiting for is here. So they're identifying Jesus with that prophet that Moses had promised. What about Jesus the king? We've talked about the prophet. What about the king? This is kind of our first opportunity in John to really think more critically about Jesus as king. Well, that same passage back in John chapter 1, Philip tells Nathanael, we found the one Moses was talking about. Nathanael then has a chance to interact with Jesus, and this is his response in verse 49. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Again, their messianic hope is tied up in that title, the King of Israel. What does that refer back to? In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a promise to David. The context of this is David looks around, realized how much God has blessed him, and he says, it's time for me to build a house for God. And God says to David, no, you're not the one to do that. Instead, I'm going to make you a promise. I'm going to build a house for you. Not a literal house, but a figurative house. And what he's talking about is that he makes a promise to David that his kingship will last. And one of his descendants 
is going to rise up and sit on a throne that will never go away. It will have no end. That kingdom will be never-ending. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. This is the promise God's making to David. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. And that passage goes on. I would encourage you to spend some time in it. That was another passage that was of supreme importance to the Israelite people when it came to identifying the coming Messiah. Yes, he was going to be the prophet that Moses had promised, but he was also going to be the king that God had promised to David. So when this group of people is identifying Jesus as both prophet and king, they are saying this is Messiah that we were hoping for. But there's a couple things to consider along the way. By the way, this whole conversation about Jesus as king really comes to a head in John chapter 19. It's going to be exciting when we get there. Jesus is brought before Pilate, and Pilate is very interested in trying to sort out exactly who Jesus is. What is it you're accusing him of exactly? And remember, when Pilate sent him off to be crucified, what was the inscription on the cross? Here is Jesus of Nazareth, what? king of the Jews. There's this conversation over and over again in that chapter about Jesus as king, and, and it's exciting when we get there because of what God is doing. But for now, I just want to point out this one verse, John chapter 19 and verse 12. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, and what they're saying is actually true. If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. This title of king is not innocuous. There is a lot wrapped up in that title. To identify Jesus as a king is rebellious. And it put them in danger. Rome's not going to stand for that. A Jewish king self-identifying out in the desert. Caesar's not going to have that. And it's not just the title of king, but a lot of the titles that we associate with Jesus. Son of God, Savior of the world. You know who else wore those titles proudly? Caesar did. And Jesus has come for the throne, but not Caesar's throne. A throne even higher than that one. These people are starting to realize who Jesus is. Could he be the prophet and the king that we've been waiting for? But here's a couple questions to consider. Were they looking for the king of promise? Or were they looking for a king of their own making? And I find it very interesting. Jesus gives them food, and that's enough to put a crown on him and make him king. Are they really interested in what God's plan is as it unfolds in front of them, or are they growing impatient? They found a guy they like, and they're going to make him king. Now, they're not wrong in identifying Jesus as king, are they? But could they be misguided in their motives? Could they be misguided in the way that they are understanding the will of God as it's unfolding in front of them? Were they looking for the king of promise or a king of their own making? Remember, they're going to force Jesus to be king. And that brings up another good question. Can we force Jesus to be what we want him to be? We try to all the time, don't we? There are elements of Jesus that just about anyone can find appealing. There are elements of Jesus in the Gospels that I'm sure you connect with more than others. Stories that you connect with more than others. There's a way to find something about Jesus to fall in love with, even for the most secular-minded among us. Something about this man, Jesus, holds an appeal because we see in him something special. 
not necessarily something divine, but at the very least something special. But there's this danger for us as people when we see these parts of Jesus that we really like. That we take those parts and we elevate them to the point that we've created a caricature of Jesus. Anybody ever had a caricature drawn of themselves? Every time we go to a Knott's Berry Farm, Paisley wants to do two things. She wants to have her face painted and she wants to get one of those caricatures drawn of us, right? And I don't think her uh, self-esteem is high enough to have a caricature yet, so I'm holding off on that. Because what, what do those guys do if they're really good, those artists? What do they do? They take that one thing that you're hoping nobody else notices about you, and they make it the biggest thing on your face, right? You're self-conscious about the size of your nose? Guess what? He's going to find that, and it's going to be enormous, right? Don't like the way your ears look? Guess what? Right? That's what a caricature does. It clues in to one characteristic, and it explodes it, so that becomes the only thing your eyes are fixed on. We have a tendency to do that with Jesus. We turn him into our own caricature. What did they really like about him? This guy gave him food. Let's make him king. Let's focus on that part of him. And I'm just saying we're all guilty of that to some extent, and we have to be aware of that as we approach the Jesus that we encounter in Scripture. If we really want to know who Jesus is, we have to humbly be aware of our own desire to turn him into who we want him to be. And so we end up doing exactly what this crowd did. We're going to force him to be king. Now, Jesus was king, and he would be crowned king, and not just any king, but king of kings and lord of lords. So were they misguided in what they were doing? Well, yes, they were, because they didn't fully understand what kind of king he was going to be yet. And Jesus, on his part, I find it very interesting. How does he react to all of this? What does he do? They're going to force him to be king, and he does what? He just goes away by himself. He's having none of it, because... For them to make him their king would be totally different than the kind of king that God had called him to be. He didn't come to do the will of the crowds. He came to do the will of the Father. I find in this passage a strong parallel to what we read about in Matthew chapter 4, where the Spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Do you remember the last thing Satan did? He took him up on a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and what did he say? He said, all these could be yours, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said, no, you will serve the Lord your God and him alone. Satan is offering him something that the flesh might want to take advantage of. And here again, it would be tempting from a human perspective. These people want to make me king? Let's do it. Let's get this party started right here, right now. But that's not God's timeline. And so Jesus removes himself from the situation it's a dangerous thing to let people determine the nature of God's will. And so Jesus removes himself from that situation. Nothing in this section of Scripture, I want to be careful before we move on here, and this will come into sharper focus next week. Nothing in this section of Scripture is dismissive of the physical needs of humanity. There is a crowd of people who need food. Jesus is not dismissive of that need. In fact, in Matthew and Mark's account, Matthew and Mark are very careful to point out that Jesus is moved with compassion for those crowds. And how many times do we read about that as Jesus encounters hungry or ill or deceased? He's moved with compassion and that compassion drives him to do what he's going to do. Jesus is compassionate because God the Father is compassionate and he's showing us the compassion of the God that we serve. So I want to make it clear that 
nothing in this passage and nothing we're going to talk about is dismissive of the physical needs of humanity. Does God care when his children are suffering because they are in need? Anybody? Yes. He does. And he cares deeply. So let's be careful not to dismiss the idea that these people are genuinely in need and Jesus just didn't care about that. But what I think John is forcing us to do in this text is to consider how our physical needs, our physical wants, our physical desires can blind us to our own spiritual realities. They wanted a king who could provide manna like Moses did. They needed a king who could serve their spiritual needs. But too often we get so focused on our physical that we can't recognize the spiritual. Here again, just like we talked about last week, is the struggle for us. It's so easy to read this text and say, oh, those poor folks. If only I were there, I would have understood so much better. Right? But we don't understand any better, apart from the grace of God that allows us to. We still struggle with this. Do we struggle to get past the physical so that we can truly see the spiritual all the time? All the time. You think about the way that we experience the assembly on Sunday mornings, how we've reduced the idea of church to just a gathering in a building for an hour or two a week. And what do we do? We've got all kinds of physical standards that we use to judge whether we have gained from that assembly or not. Was the singing good enough? Was the preaching good enough? Was the class dynamic enough? Was the air conditioner set to exactly the right temperature? Was the meal provided stimulating enough? You know, all these things that, and I'm not being critical of, of anyone in particular. This is, all of us deal with this. All of us. Right? There are physical things that we judge spiritual things by, and it blinds us from the reality. And this group of people is just suffering from the same affliction, and it's called humanity. They're, they're people. We struggle with the physical. And for them, they weren't able to see truly who Jesus was yet. They were close. They got the prophet part right. They got the king part right, but they didn't fully understand what it was yet because for them, what mattered most is that their bellies were full. And they were satisfied. But it's like what happens in John chapter 4. When Jesus has that conversation with a Samaritan woman at the well. And he tells her, if you only knew who I was, you would ask for water. And guess what I could really give you? It's the same thing here. They love Jesus because he gave them bread. But this is going to bring about a conversation about what they really needed. And what he could really offer them. They didn't fully understand that part of Jesus yet. And so, again, I just encourage you to strive as humbly as you can to approach this text, understanding your own limitations. If we're going to understand what's happening here, we've got to look past the physical and zero in on the spiritual. So the text continues, verse 16 and 18. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off. So this is our second mini-narrative. He feeds the crowds. Now he's going to walk on water. The disciples went down to the lake. They get into a boat, and they set off across the lake for Capernaum. The text doesn't tell us why Jesus stayed behind, but he did. So the disciples are in a boat. Jesus stays behind. It says, by now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. 
A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. And if you've never been in a small boat on a large body of water, when the storms come up, it can be a truly terrifying experience. If you've experienced it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. This is what they're about to experience. And it says, when they had rowed about three or four miles, so they're about halfway across this large body of water, they're in the middle of the lake, and a storm comes up. They see Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. Now, the other synoptics give us a lot more information about this. Matthew, especially in Matthew's text, we... I think most closely associate this story, not just Jesus walking on the water, but who else? Peter, right? This is a story about Peter walking on the water, and they think it's a ghost, and we know all that. Well, John's not interested in telling Matthew's story all over again. He's telling the same story, but he wants to share something different. Jesus approaches the boat. They're terrified, and they were frightened by what they're seeing, but he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Now that it is I that he says here, that's how the NIV translates it. You know how else it could be translated? I am. Don't be afraid. We've talked already about the I am statements of John. You remember a few weeks ago when we went through all those statements in one worship? Well, the first of those I am statements we find is actually here in John chapter 6. We'll get to it next week where he says, I am the bread of life. But he's already starting to make those kinds of statements. I am, of course, is an identifier for God the Father. He's saying, I am, don't be afraid. And I just want to show you something interesting here, a connection that we can make. In Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 through 2, we read this. But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. What happens several times in Isaiah is God reminds Israel of what he did through the Exodus as a way of giving them hope for what he will do again for them in the future as Redeemer. Do you remember when I brought you through the water? Guess what? I'll do it again. Now, not literally through the water, but what do we find happening here as Moses makes this miraculous journey across the water in the Exodus story, what is Jesus doing here? Jesus, the prophet that Moses talked about, he's making a miraculous journey across turbulent water. John wants us to make these connections. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And then again in Isaiah chapter 51, and would you turn over there with me? I'm going to read just a little bit longer section here. Isaiah chapter 51, we're going to read verses 9 through 16. Isaiah 51, 9 through 16, again, God is reminding Israel that he has not abandoned them and they still have hope in redemption through him, but he does that by first reminding them of what he had done through the Exodus story. So he says, awake, awake, arm of the Lord, clothe yourselves with strength, awake, as in days gone by, as in generations of old, remember way back what I did for your fathers. Was it not you who cut Rahab? To pieces, And we know from other texts here that Rahab is a reference to Egypt, who pierced that monster through. Was it not you who dried up the sea? What is he referencing? The Exodus account. The waters of the great deep who made a road in the depths of the sea so that the redeemed might cross over. Do you remember when I did that for you, Israel? Guess what? 
I'm going to do it again. Those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. I, even I, am he who comforts you. I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you fear mere mortals? Human beings who are but grass, that you forget the Lord your maker, who stretches out the heavens and who lays the foundations of the earth, that you live in constant terror every day because of the wrath of the oppressor who is bent on destruction. For where is the wrath of the oppressor? The cowering prisoners will soon be set free. They will not die in their dungeon, nor will they lack bread. For I am the Lord your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord Almighty is his name. I have put my words in your mouth and covered you with the shadow of my hand. I who set the heavens in place, who laid the foundations of the earth, and who say to Zion, you are my people. Israel, don't lose hope. You are still my people. I will still redeem you. I have not left you or abandoned you, because remember what I did for your fathers when I led them through the wilderness across the sea. I will do that for you again. And what do we find Jesus doing here? This miraculous journey across the sea. And he says, don't be afraid at the turbulent waters you find yourselves in, because I am is here. I think what we find happening throughout this chapter is John, again, giving us opportunity to draw a contrast and a comparison between different groups of people. Like I said, first it was the group of people in chapter 5 who rejected his identity totally. Contrast to the group of people in chapter 6 who are calling him prophet and king. But also there's this contrast within the chapter between the crowds of people who have gathered to see him and his close group of disciples. As those crowds are still trying to wrap their heads around who exactly Jesus is, and we'll find out later in the chapter, are so frustrated that they end up leaving, his closest disciples are actually coming to faith in the full identity of Jesus. It says, then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Well, big deal. Jesus is in the middle of the lake. they like, they got to let him in the boat, right? Well, I think something more is happening here. That word take is the same word that John uses in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. It's the same word. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The crowds think they're figuring out who Jesus is, but they're going to take Jesus and by force make him who they want him to be. The disciples, meanwhile, are figuring out exactly who he is and are receiving him fully. And so that sets up what happens at the end of this chapter when that group of people who are there because they're so interested in what Jesus is going to do next are ready to leave. But the disciples aren't going anywhere because they're not trying to turn Jesus into who they want him to be. They're coming to faith in who he actually is. And it gives us an opportunity to look inwardly and ask ourselves the question, which of those two groups of people are we most associated with? Are we still trying to, out of our curiosity in Jesus, turn him into a version of our own reality? Or are we coming to faith in who he actually is 
Do we understand what it means to call Jesus prophet and king? This is not Jesus the magician. This is Jesus the I am. He's not doing a neat trick when he walks on the water. He's illustrating exactly who he is. And this is not Jesus who should be followed simply because he offers free lunches. This is the Jesus who has so much more to offer us. The giver of eternal life. Bread can keep you alive for another day, but what Jesus offers us can sustain us forever. Which are you more interested in? And that sets up the conversation that he's going to have with this group of people. And I so hope you'll be back as we go through the rest of this chapter next week. Won't you allow yourself the opportunity this morning to critically and humbly ask yourself the question, have I really come to terms with who Jesus is? And I think the way that we answer that question is by asking a follow-up question. Am I living my life in submission to him? If I'm not, then I think it's fair to say I haven't really figured out who he is yet. But once I do come to that understanding of who Jesus is as prophet and king, then what choice do I have but to submit to the creator of the world, the one who loves me, the one who would give anything for me, a God of abundance? Won't you submit to his abundant grace and mercy and love in your life? And don't just call him king, but serve him as king. If you've not made that decision yet in your life, now is the time to do that. And we give you an invitation this morning to put him on in baptism and begin that journey. We're going to stand and we're going to sing a couple songs here back to back. As we do that, if you're ready to begin your journey as a disciple of Jesus, not just an interested observer, but a disciple of Jesus, if you're ready to begin that journey today, won't you come forward as we stand and sing and let us know? But also I want to offer one more invitation I was reminded in class, we had such a great discussion today about relationships and the value of relationships in the church. Sometimes you just need a person to hug on and to pray alongside you. And if you find yourself in that situation this morning, I want, I want to offer an invitation. At the very end of service, I'm going to be up here in this front row. If you just need a prayer, if you need a hug, if there's something you need, and I can serve you in any way, won't you join me on the front row? I'd love to have the opportunity to pray with you this morning. Whatever we can do to serve you, we offer you the invitation now. Won't you stand? Let's sing these songs together. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Here and my time.